The Gemara tells us about Shammai Azokin. Shammai was in, when he was already an elder statesman, when he was already a tremendous individual. All of his days he would eat Lekavet Shabbos. What does that mean? On Sunday he would go to the shuk, he would go to the marketplace and see an animal and say, Oh, what a beautiful animal. This one is for Shabbos. Monday he would go to the marketplace and find an even more beautiful animal. He'd say, no, 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 this one is for Shabbos. Then obviously the one he took before, he would then consume that day. Tuesday he would go to the shuk, the same thing. He would find a better one. This one is for Shabbos. All of the days of his life, Shammai would go through and find the best for Shabbos. And this, the Brisa tells us, is an extreme value, a wonderful thing. Whereas Hillel was a little bit different. Hillel had faith in Hashem, that Hashem would provide for him the best. The one that came along, Hillel would use that one for Shabbos. He trusted Hashem would bring him the best. Shammai, on the other hand, spent every day making sure he had the best for Shabbos. Now this is an interesting price, and it's clearly brought down to teach us a lesson, but I'd like to ask the following question. It doesn't seem that this Bryce is teaching us the correct lesson at all. It seems that these individuals were hedonists, were pleasure seekers, as if Shammai was after pleasure. Oh my goodness, this night bame is not good enough. I have a better one. Oh, there's an even better one. Hillel, he had trust in Hashem to bring him the best. But we're dealing with mundane pleasures. We're dealing with people of extraordinary piety who seem to be involved in the most mundane, regular thing, pursuit of pleasures. And even stranger, there are many, many examples in the Gemara brought where Amorayim were involved in activities in honor of Shabbos. Rava used to singe the head of a fish. And this Amori used to prepare the food this way. Very involved in not just the mundane, but making sure that there were pleasures for Shabbos. And it sounds a little difficult to understand because these were very pious people, extraordinarily careful with their time. And why are they involved in such things as pleasure, making sure the food is delicious, making sure they have the best food? It doesn't sound like actions that are appropriate for these type of people. And the question is, why is it? And if you don't appreciate this question, let me focus on why it's particularly a poignant question. If I ask you, what is the single greatest cause of sin? What's the main cause of sin? So most people come up with a string of reasons, temptation, desire, jealousy, maybe love of money. Everyone has their little pet peeve, and everyone has a list of the causes of sin. I'd like to share with you that I sincerely believe there is one major cause of sin, and only one, and that is something called stupidity. I'll explain to you what I mean. It's very rare that we commit crimes of passion. It's very rare that a person is so taken with desire that he... He does something, I, I know it's wrong, I know it's bad, but what can I do? Almost invariably what happens to us is we end up doing things. We don't realize, we don't think about it. Five years later, ten years later, we discover, oh my goodness, how did I end up here? The vast, vast majority of our mistakes, the vast, vast majority of the things that we do wrong have nothing to do with major temptation, has to do much more with being asleep at the switch. And that's a very interesting reality. You see, one of the great questions, if it could be that faced Hashem when he was creating Adam, was how do you take an Hashemah, brilliant, insightful, perceptive, 
and give it free will. You see, free will means I could do this, I could do that. But here's the problem. Every mitzvah that the Torah commanded me in is for my benefit. It helps me. It makes me grow. It makes me bigger, better, and certainly happier. And the opposite. Any sin damages me, hurts me, and in the end is something that I regret deeply. But not just in the world to come, right here. How many times do we end up two weeks later, two months later, saying, why did I say those words? Why did I do that? It's very rare that we're happy with the mistakes that we made. So how do you take a neshama, so brilliant, so insightful, put it into a world and give it free will? Free will should be impossible. The neshama sees with absolute clarity of thought. Every action has a consequence. Everything that Hashem commanded me in is for my benefit. How in the world would the neshama ever have free will? And there should be no such concept. And to solve this great dilemma, if it could be, Hashem put the neshama into a body, and this body has its own nefesh. You see, any animal in the wild kingdom has a nefesh, has a vibrant life part. If you see Elsie the cow out in the field, there's something that tells it to eat the grass and not to chew on bark. There's something that tells it to go into the barn at night. There's a vibrant, live part to the nefesh of that animal. That's what we call the nefesh of Bahami. Into that, Hashem put all of the instincts, the drive, the desires to keep the animal alive. In my body, within this framework, is a nefesh of Bahami, an animal soul. The animal soul with the man desires everything that's needed to keep me alive. The desire to eat, desire to sleep, desire to procreate, all of the natural desires of the human are placed into Nefesh Bahami. And the I whom speaking to you are made up of two parts. A Neshama that is pure and holy, that came from under the Kisei covered, came under, from under Hashem's throne, put into a body which has its own Nefesh Bahami, and the I that I'm speaking to you are made up of both. A combination, a synthesis of two diverse competing parts. And each one vying for primacy, each one fighting for control, each one demanding its needs. The body demands all of its needs, the neshama demands each, all of its needs, and these two parts are constantly competing where one or the other is going to gain control. The more you give in to the animal soul, the more you allow it to rule over you, the stronger it becomes, the more dominant it becomes, the more control it has over your decisions and who you are, and the opposite, the more you control it, the more your neshama wins out, the stronger it becomes, and the more it becomes the dominant force within you. But these two parts are ever competing, these two parts are ever fighting for control over I. So here's the question. Wouldn't you imagine that Shabbos, which is the holiest day of the week, should be a day much like Yom Kippur? Listen, on Yom Kippur, we don't eat, we don't drink, and it's a day that's specially focused on one thing, thinking, being close to Hashem, allowing my neshama to come to the fore, weakening the body in such a way that it no longer interferes, allowing my neshama to come out to feel things, to understand things. And wouldn't you imagine that if Shabbos is the holiest day of the week, that it should be a day just like Yom Kippur, focused on spirituality, no eating, no drinking, 
Yet, strangely enough, that's not what Shammai was involved in. That's not what the Amoraim were involved in. And it doesn't seem to be part of the Torah system. And the question is, why not? But if this question doesn't bother you, I think the next one will. The Gemara Be'er tells us that on Shabbos we're given a neshama yesera, an extra neshama. We're given this extra neshama on Shabbos, presumably so that we can access spirituality to a greater extent. The Sforno explains with this extra neshama, I'm able to perceive things. I'm able to understand things. I'm able to learn more deeply. I'm able to perceive Hashem in the world to a greater extent. I was given this neshama yesera at the beginning of Shabbos. It lasts through Shabbos. Motzi Shabbos, it's taken away. For that reason, we have Besamim as part of Avdallah. Chazal instituted Besamim. Why? Because when you breathe in that fragrance, you smell it, that's one of the loftiest pleasures. You are a little bit down. You see, your Neshama Yaseiru was with you for 24 hours, and now it leaves. And you, you, the Neshama of you, are somewhat down. You're somewhat a little, a little bit left, almost bereft. Therefore, you breathe in, it gives you a little bit of hana, a little bit of pleasure, the highest sort of physical pleasure, which is smelling, to give you something back for what you lost. But here's the point. A neshama yaseira that you're given has a specific role to allow you access to things that you normally can't think about, access to things you normally don't feel, to allow you greater kedusha, greater spirituality. Yet listen to how Rashi defines neshama yaseira. Rashi in the Gemara Be'er, Daftes Zayin Amin Aleph says, What does it mean, Neshama Yaseir, extra Neshama? Rochav Lev Lemenucha Simcha, an expansiveness of heart to relaxing and to joy. And a heart that's open to luxuries, to excess. Therefore, a person can eat and drink. And his nefesh won't be repulsed by it. You see, normally, if I'm involved in eating and drinking mundane things, my neshama cries out, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. But on Shabbos, you have this neshama, you say, or this expansiveness of heart. You can rest, you can relax, you can eat and drink, and your neshama won't be repulsed by it. Now, if you read that Rashi, you should say that is the most difficult concept to understand or imagine. What is Rashi saying? He's defining neshama yaseira in the most opposite terms you could ever imagine. And just to put it into perspective, to appreciate how powerful this Rashi should bother you as a question, the Mesut Shasharm gives us a mushal. Do you want to understand yourself? Do you understand what's going on in the human? He says, imagine the following. A princess was brought up in a castle. Since the time she was born, nothing but satin and silk, the finest luxuries, the life of enchantment. And that's the life she lived until she was 20. She somehow one day ended up in the woods. She got lost. After a full year, she finally found a shack. Anyway, at the end of the day, she met this peasant, married this peasant, and leads the rest of her life married to this simple, simple peasant. Explains Ms. Sharm in the Mushal. Anything that the peasant will bring to her is not significant to her. One day he carved some beads for her. She was brought up with pearls, emeralds, diamonds. And one day he makes a nice little plate. She's used to dining on bone china. Anything he brings to her doesn't have value. Explains Ms. Sharm, that mushal is us. My neshama 
is that princess brought up in under Hashem's throne of glory, exposed to such holiness, put into this physical mundane world, and my neshama says, ugh, and anything that I bring it, food, drink, luxuries, money, honor, it's empty, it's meaningless. My neshama is used to so much holier, so much higher. And anything that I bring it from this entire world leaves my neshama with that, ugh, what did you bring me? You brought me nothing. However, explains Rashi, not on Shabbos. On Shabbos we give some Novocaine to the neshama. We kind of give it some deadening agent, so now you can eat and you can drink, and it won't be repulsed. Normally, if you indulge in physicality, if you indulge in materialism, your neshama screams out, ugh, what are you wasting my time? But you have a neshama yaseer, an extra neshama on Shabbos, now you can indulge in pleasures, and it won't be repulsed by it. What is Rashi saying? It sounds very, very difficult to understand. And I'd like to see if we could better understand what, in fact, Rashi is saying, if we could better understand Shammai Azokain, and if we could better understand this concept called Oneg Shabbos. And just to focus on it, it's clear that Oneg means delight. If you translate the word Oneg Shabbos, Oneg Shabbos means delight as in eating, as in drinking, as in enjoying. And as a matter of fact, the Medrash Shabbos is very clear. The very first Shabbos that the Jewish nation kept, Hashem said to him, don't make any mistake. Don't think that Shabbos is a series of don't. Don't think that Shabbos is a series of restrictions. You should know on Shabbos you should wear your finest clothing. Eat, drink, give yourself pleasure, and I will give you schar, I will give you reward for that pleasure. And in fact, that's the famous Gemara in Shabbos, that one who is ma'aneges a Shabbos, one who takes delight in the Shabbos, enjoys pleasures on the Shabbos, eating, drinking, they give him tremendous rewards. A reward in the world to come without limits. He's saved from various Shibud Goliaths, from various pains. It's a wonderful thing, this thing called Onik Shabbos. We're given tremendous reward for it. And the question is, why? How? How does it fit into the whole system of growth, of accomplishment? How does it fit into the rest of the Torah? How do we understand it? And I'd like to see if we can understand this, understand Shammai, understand Rashi, and understand this entire concept called Oneg Shabbos. And to do this, let's focus on the following. We mentioned that pleasures have a particular purpose in this world. Two of them, we mentioned, are rather obvious. The first one is what the Mesilasham calls Menuchas HaNefesh, a certain relaxation. You know, you need a vacation, you need a break. You take pleasures in this world to give you yeshivadas, to give you a settled mind, to give you a sense of balance. You take a day off, you take a week off, and you come back refreshed. That's the concept of pleasures. A person needs these things because it helps them function. My focus is to serve Hashem. My focus is to grow. Pleasures are tools that help me, in a sense that they give me yeshivadas, nachas ruach, they make it easier for me to function. That's way number one. Way number two we discussed is that pleasures have a way of creating a connection. You make Kiddush on a cup of wine. Why? Because it connects you more to that activity called Kiddush. There's a bonding through the pleasure, through the enjoyment. It creates a greater connection. Modern man thinks he's mastered the self-help. 
section, but you quickly look around and you see that modern man has not mastered very much at all. But Chazal described to us how a person grows. One of the tools is through using bonding agents, using pleasures in the appropriate way, bond you to that activity, whether it be a mitzvah, whether it be a husband and wife. In many, many situations, pleasures become a bonding agent to attach a person more to the proper thing. So the first one is used as a yeshivadas nachzruch, a relaxation. The second is an attachment agent. But there's a third element of pleasures, and that third element has nothing to do with the first and has nothing to do with my station in this world at all. And to understand what the third function of pleasures are, let me ask you a very pointed question. What is it like in the world to come? What's it like in Olam Haba? Now look, we spend our whole life growing, accomplishing, learning, davening, working on our character traits, all for what? For our station in the world to come. Hashem created us for that purpose. That's why we're here. So here's the question. What's it like? What's it going to be like when your body's put in the ground, you separate, and you're there? What happens? What does it feel like? What is that experience? And I'd like to share with you one Gemara that's very eye-opening. Gemara Baba Basra tells us, each person is burnt by the chuppah, by the um, separate area of his friend. Meaning to say, in the world to come, we're each individuals. My world to come is going to be different than your world to come. What I've accomplished is different than what you've accomplished. So even though there are no physical separations, there's no physicality, but each of us will enjoy different things different sensations, because each of us worked on different things, reached different levels. So my world and your world are going to be different worlds. But the Gemara tells us that I will look at your world and I'll be burnt by it, because I don't have what you have. And you will look at my world and you'll be burnt by that, because you don't have what I have. And that's the Gemara's description of the world to come. Now, when you read that description, you should say, that's not Gan Eden, that's Gehenim. That doesn't sound like a very wonderful situation. You're not jealous, bothered by, this one is that, that one is that, this one is that, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have. You're spending your whole eternity realizing what you don't have. That doesn't sound very pleasurable, doesn't sound very enjoyable at all. So let's see if we can understand that Gemara, and let's see if we can understand what it shares with us about what the world to come is really like. And to understand this better, let me focus on one interesting reality. Americans take some things seriously, and there are some things that they take very, very seriously. And one thing that Americans seem to take very, very, very seriously is the snack food industry. This is big business. And we're talking about $28 billion a year spent just on salty snacks one category of the entire snack food industry, but it's a huge, huge industry, $28 billion a year. To give an illustration of how big salted snacks are, one of the measures of modern consumption is the Super Bowl. You measure how much Americans will eat during the Super Bowl. How do you measure it? Take the week's sales of previous to the Super Bowl, compare it to other times, and you'll see how much Americans actually eat at Super Bowl Sunday, at the Super Bowl parties, etc. Potato chips 
this year were at $140 million. $140 million worth of potato chips were consumed during the Super Bowl. But just so you understand, the competition is fierce. You have many, many manufacturers who are making potato chips. You have Lay's potato chips and Cape Cod potato chips and Harris potato chips and Pringles. And each one is vying for market share. And each one is doing everything in its power to grow, put the other ones out of business, because that's competition. That's the way the world is. So if you are a major potato chip manufacturer or you're a small potato chip manufacturer and you want to grow, what do you do? So you come out with new flavors, new tastes. And in fact, that's the reality. Lay's Potato Chips now has barbecue, sour cream and onion, salt and pepper, ham. Cape Cod Potato Chips now has sea salt and vinegar, sea salt and cracked pepper, whole grain toasted grains, waffle cut sea salt. Harris Potato Chips says Old Bay hot sauce, jalapeno and horseradish. Um, Pringles now has um, chili cheese dog, seaweed, cinnamon sugar, sour cream and ketchup. Of course, Doritos has uh, a dozen different varieties of Doritos, and that is the problem. There are so many choices. What if you decide you want more market share? What do you do? How do you come out with a flavor that's distinct, that's unusual, that will increase sales because the consumers will notice it? So the answer is you have to invent a flavor that's really noticeable, that's really decidedly different, and that consumers will like. And there's a tremendous amount of energy, effort, and money spent on doing just that. The way you gain market share is you come out with a new flavor. The way you grow is by dominating the market with your reputation as the most flavorful, the most delicious, the crispiest. And the only way you can grow is by coming out with new flavors that work. But how do you know? How do you know what flavor to change? How do you know whether to add salt or maybe to add pepper or to add whatever? So here's where you hire what's called a professional food taster. You see, in the lab, you experiment with this type of salty, this type of flavor, but now you need an assessment. Where does this compare to the rest of the potato chip market? There are hundreds of flavors in the potato chip market. Is this distinct? Is it unusual? Will the consumers like it or not? So you need someone who's very, very knowledgeable, not just about potato chips, but about flavors, tastes. So you hire a professional food taster, and these people are exactly that. They're professionals, highly skilled, well-paid. And by the way, to get to the top of your game, it's 20 years in the industry until you're considered an expert. But I want to point out what a professional food taster is. Back in the early 80s, there was the Pepsi Challenge. Then there were the cola wars between Pepsi and Coke, which is the most dominant. Coke had been the leading brand for years, and Pepsi made the following challenge. They said, we guarantee that if you actually taste Pepsi next to Coke, you'll prefer Pepsi. And what they did was they set up in supermarkets throughout the country a blind taste test, meaning the representative of the company would bring two cups, and you would sample it. And you tell the person there which one you prefer, and then the person would say, ah, see, Pepsi. The Pepsi challenge was won time after time by Pepsi, and what they discovered was that Pepsi had a sweeter taste, and apparently consumers, at least in a taste test, at least in initial testing, preferred it over Coke. Now, you, as a consumer, I almost guarantee, can tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi 
even if you don't really drink cola. But there is a difference. It's not a huge degree of difference. But if I put a bottle of Coke, bottle of Pepsi, or better yet, a cup of each in front of you, you could probably tell that one is sweeter than the other. You would taste it and say, this one is sweeter. Yes. Okay. But I want to share with you something interesting. What if instead of two cups, I put three cups? What if I put three cups in front of you, two of them had one brand of soda, and the other one had the other one? And I asked you the following question, choose the sweetest one, or even better, choose the single one that's different than the other ones. Choose the one out of the three that isn't the same. And I almost guarantee that you won't be able to do that. Why? Because you'll taste the first one, okay, you got that taste in your mind, good. Then you'll taste the second one, you'll say, hmm, this is different, yes, this one is a little bit, it is a little bit different, I think it is good. And then you'll take the third one. But by the time you take the third, the taste of the first one is gone. How do you recall it? How do you remember uh, the second one I just tasted? I, rem- I could compare the third to the second. But how do you remember what you tasted back then? Uh, the, you can't hold on to it. And the reason you can't hold on to it is because we're amateurs. We don't taste professionally. This, we're just, we do whatever else we do for a living. But a professional taste tester cannot just tell you the difference amongst three You could put 24 cups, each one either more sweet or not sweet, and by number, a professional taste tester will tell you exactly where they're at. You see, there's a ranking system, a spectrum. On a scale of 1 to 15, where does this rate? And a professional taste tester will pick up the first one, taste it, and instantly, in his or her mind, rate it to 3 in sweetness. I got it. Number 2, oh, this is a 7. Very different. Number three, it's a six. And they'll go through each one and instantly identify the sweetness of it because they train themselves. Years and years of training, a certain discernment, a certain very, very great sensitivity, and they can take cup after cup and nail it exactly this level of sweetness, this level of sweetness, this level of sweetness. However, things get a little complicated because, you see, it's not just one thing called sweetness in terms of food. There are four basic tastes, right? We have salty, sweet, sour. You have various different nuances in there. But you see, it's not just the four basic tastes. You also have a lot of other issues that you have to deal with. Meaning to say, the appearance of a product might be different than the other. The aroma might be different. The flavor, the texture. So it happens to be that professional taste testers have a spectrum for each one of them. So meaning to say, if they're going to taste a cookie or a cracker, they'll taste it and instantly in their mind rate it in terms of sweetness, in terms of salty, in terms of sour, in terms of bitter, and they'll come up with a number right away. But it's not just in terms of the basic taste. There are many other attributes, and instantly they'll come up with a number for that as well. How crispy is it? So, for instance, Quaker's granola bars have a crispiness of two. Keebler's crackers have a crispiness of five. Kellogg's cornflakes is a 14. But you see, this is something that happens when a taste tester tastes it almost instantly. He or she identifies it in terms of the basic flavors, in terms of the appearance, the aroma, the texture. Mayonnaise has six dimensions of appearance. Color, color intensity, chroma, lumpiness and bubbles. 
10 dimensions of texture, how it feels on your lips, firm, dense, 14 dimensions of flavor. And you're talking about a taste tester who takes one taste of an object and across a gamut of 100 different areas will rate it and instantly know it and recognize it. How does this happen? Because they become so facile that instantly this product registers in their mind. It's what we call a signature, meaning they bite into a Kibla cookie and wow, a six in sweetness, a seven in crunch, a three in tenderness. Instantly it creates an image in their mind, a signature, and it's a flavor. It's an experience that is so real to them that they have it right there. And they can remember that sensation next week, next month, because it has a lexicon, there are names to it, there are various degrees to it, and it's something they're so familiar with that they readily identify it and readily remember it. Why is that relevant to us? Let's take one more step. Hashem created everything in this world with all of its needs right here. Every animal was given the ability to feed itself, to defend itself. Some animals were granted great speed. Some animals were granted the ability to camouflage themselves. Some animals were granted powerful claws. Each animal in the wild, Hashem gave all of its needs for it to eat, for it to survive, and for it to protect himself. However, it seems that there's one animal in the wild that Hashem sort of forgot about, and that's the skunk. The skunk is round, rather slow, and worse than that, basically black, and on his back, a white stripe. It's like a bullseye. It's like a bullseye saying, eat me. And in fact, he's fair game to quite a number of predators, the wolf, wild dogs, coyotes, and he should be a very tasty morsel. Yet, by and large, the skunk is left untouched. Why? Because a wolf, when he's young, might be hungry one day and see this skunk and say, yum, and he'll go to attack the skunk. The skunk turns around, lifts its tail, emits a spray that gets into the fur of this wolf. Now, if you've ever smelt the stench of a skunk, it's ugh, it's disgusting. For an entire month, that wolf is trying to get rid of that smell. It goes into the river and bays. It doesn't work. It rubs itself against trees and it doesn't work. For an entire month, its fur is stench-filled with the smell of skunk. And it learns the lesson rather quickly to avoid the skunk. But you know why it learns that lesson very quickly? Because you and I smell things, but nowhere near as intensely as does a wolf, as do many of the animals in the wild. A dog has a very amazing capacity for smell. A dog can smell things a mile away. A trained dog, a hunting dog, a bomb-sniffing dog, a drug-sniffing dog can smell things at a distance that sounds incredible. And in fact, they've been trained to sniff out drugs, to sniff out explosives, and they're incredibly sharp. As an example, some clever smuggler decided to put marijuana inside a gasoline tank, 35 pounds of marijuana. He put it in an air-sealed container, put it on the bottom of a huge gasoline tank. Now, gasoline has a powerful odor. It's very, very noxious. Obviously, no dog is going to be able to sniff out 35 pounds of marijuana on the bottom of this huge, huge gasoline tank. 
Instantly, the dog smelled it out. Scientists now estimate that a dog has an olfactory sense, a smelling sense, 100,000 times more sensitive than ours. If you were to translate it like into taste, if we could taste a, a spoonful of sugar in a cup of coffee, a dog would be able to taste a spoonful of sugar in one million gallons of coffee. So much more intense, so much more vibrant that it's able to pick up things that you and I would never, ever smell. But some of the features are rather uncanny. A bloodhound knows how to track. And what they'll do is, if a little girl was kidnapped, they'll bring a sock or some article of clothing from that little girl that she had worn so it has a smell. They'll bring it to the bloodhound. Bloodhound smells it. Then off on the trail he goes. Despite the fact that there are thousands of other smells, despite the fact that it might be hundreds of people, he identifies that Sally smell. He smells it for a moment or two, then sets off after it, and he'll follow it for miles. Because Sally smells so distinct from any other creature, from any other human, and when a dog does instantly is creates a signature. Its sense of smell is so potent, so powerful, so right there, that it instantly has a signature that's this person. This is a smell of that person, not that person, not that person, no, this person. And it could remember it and track it for miles after it. When that wolf gets sprayed by the skunk for the next month, it's tensely bombarded with odors that bother us. It. It'd be almost like you and I were sitting with, with huge speakers blaring in our ears. Ow! Oh! Because the sense of smell to a dog is so much there, so powerful that it's overpowering. Now, here's an observation. What if you and I had taste that was as sensitive as a dog's sense of smell? Could you imagine it? We'd bite into an apple. Wow! That's incredible. So discernible. So unique. But I don't mean unique as opposed to a pear. Unique in the sense, my goodness, what kind of soil was this? How much water was it? I taste the sweetness, but the crunch is a, a level seven and... And the sweetness is just the right flavor. And that beautiful little, do I, do I detect hints of pineapple, five or six in pineapple? The flavor would be so round and big. The experience would be so intense. I dare say if you'd bite into a steak, you'd probably fall off of your chair with the intensity of the experience. But when we eat food, <laughs> that's not quite the if we pay attention to bite one, it's good. Bite two, maybe. By bite four, we're gone. Why is that? Because the sense of taste that Hashem gave us isn't e the equivalent of the sense of smell that Hashem gave to the dog. And why not? For a very simple reason. There are pleasures in this world, and they have particular reasons. Hashem put pleasures into this world for us to enjoy. But this is not the place of enjoyment. It's not the end-all and be-all, not the purpose of this world. So there are additional, there are add-ons called pleasures that you should add to your life. It'll make you happier, make your life easier. But because they're not the purpose, because they're not the focal point, they're not that intense, not that long-lasting, rather quick. You put them, you use them for what they should, they work well, but they're certainly not the focal point. But what if? What if Hashem designed a world for one purpose? What if Hashem designed the world strictly for pleasure? Imagine that Hashem designed an entire world 
with one intention in mind, just pleasure. Now, it's clear that Hashem is very capable. I look at this world and the features of this world, and I see Hashem is very good at doing that which Hashem does. Could you imagine what it would be like if Hashem were to create a world for one purpose, for you to have pleasure? You'd have pleasure upon pleasure, sniffs and whiffs and flavors and swirls within that. Unimaginable experiences, each one with a signature, each one unique, each one identifiable, each one so astounding that it's difficult to imagine. The Kochve R explains to us that each mitzvah that we do is unique. You put on tefillin, that's one mitzvah. You visit a sick person, that's a different mitzvah. Naturally, because the mitzvahs are different, there are different rewards for each mitzvah. In addition to which, there are different levels of difficulty involved in doing mitzvahs. Sometimes it's very easy to do mitzvah. Sometimes it's not so easy. And for one person, it might be very embarrassing. For another person, it's a great source of honor. And even more than that, for each individual, depending on the day, the week, it may be different. So not only is each di- mitzvah different and therefore has to have a different reward, each person doing the mitzvah has to have a different amount of reward depending on whether that mitzvah is easy or hard. In addition to that, even that person himself has to have different levels of reward because it might have been easier that day, harder that day. And if you'd like to understand reward in the world to come, it doesn't come in one flavor. We live in a monolithic, very one-dimensional world. In our world, you want to talk about currency, it's money. There are dollars, there are quarters, dimes. It's all very linear, one currency. In the world to come, the reward is not linear. Each mitzvah is distinct, therefore it has its reward. Each level of difficulty associated with it adds another dimension. It's not one flavor, it's multitudes of flavors, and you're incredibly astute and incredibly attuned to the levels and levels of pleasure. Would you like to understand that Gemara that says each of us is burnt by what the other has? I have plenty, Baruch Hashem, I have a tremendous amount. But I look at you and say, wow, look what you have. It doesn't torture me, but I do recognize that you accomplished something and maybe I could or maybe I couldn't, but that's astonishing. I see what you have. I have Baruch Hashem. I'm not lacking. I'm not wanting. I enjoy what I have. But at the same time, I recognize there were things that you accomplished that I didn't. And the rewards that you have are vastly different. Each one with a unique experience. Each one separate. Each one distinct. And that's what the government means, that we each look at each other. And we each have a sense of being burnt. One more critical step. A human being can take hide, ink, and a quill and transform that into a Dover Shebekedusha, into a holy item. If a sofa takes parchment from a cow, takes dio, takes ink, takes a quill, and writes the name of Hashem, he creates a Sefer Torah, one of the holiest objects imaginable. He takes the mundane and infuses Kedusha into it. The Ramchal explains to us that everything in creation has a purpose. Hashem created nothing without a purpose. Everything was weighed. Everything was measured. And the Ramchal explains that pleasures also have their purpose. Number one, to give you a sense of balance, take a break. Number two, the attachment. But it explains the Ramchal that if pleasures are used properly, in the right way, in the right time, and you can make that pleasure a Dover Shebekedusha. You can elevate it, and it becomes a mitzvah in and of itself. It becomes holy. 
much like tzitzit, much like tefillin, it becomes an object of kedusha, and it's yours for eternity? Would you like to understand what Rashi is saying? Do you know why it is that when you take pleasure on Shabbos, when you eat with the right intention, your neshama doesn't rebel, it doesn't nuch, because what you're doing is an intensely spiritual experience. Granted, it sounds like it's mundane. Granted, it's through the normal process of eating. But the pleasure that you take, Hashem says, you have a neshama now that's receptive, that's ready. If you give yourself pleasure in that time, in that way, it is an experience that's kaddush, that's holy. You are transforming that pleasure into a davar shabakadusha. And the reason why your neshama is exalted and delighted, not repulsed, is because you are now gaining your world to come. You see, every mitzvah, in according to the amount that you put into it, is your reward. Meaning to say, if you work very, very hard at a mitzvah, you're given far more reward. If you have much more intense kavana in a mitzvah, you're given much more reward. If you show up to the king's banquet and you're stuffed to the gills and you're barely eating with any appetite, how much hana, how much pleasure you're having? The answer is very little. But if you actually eat on Shabbos with enjoyment and actually delight in it, you are doing that mitzvah properly. And as much as it sounds like the most physical, mundane, materialistic activity, because you have an Hashemah Yisera, and because you're doing it in the right way, in the right time, you are transforming that into an object of Kedusha. And your neshama is a light, is a glow. Why? Because you've just bought your Olam Haba. If you want to taste the world to come, taste the kugel, taste the chulun, taste the chicken. And when you're tasting it, think about this following concept. Hashem commanded me to enjoy. And the flavors, the nuances, the texture, the mouthfeel are things that Hashem wants me to experience. And the more that I experience it, this is a me'ain, this is sort of like a dogma, almost like a muscle to what my reward in the world to come is. It's very hard for us to relate to the world to come because we're physical, and we're very, very corporeal. But when you experience pleasures in this world, used in the right way, in the right time, no one understand you're transforming them, making them holy, and your neshama is delighted by the activity because that's almost a muscle, almost a parable to what you're going to experience in the world to come for what you've done. And if you'd like to understand Beishamai, he was a connoisseur. He was a connoisseur, and Monday's cow was not the same as Tuesday's. And Tuesday's was not as good as Wednesday's. And he was a connoisseur who appreciated one thing. The pleasures that Hashem put in this world used properly become different items. And the pleasure that I take from this cow is going to be different than that cow. And therefore he bought himself more of the world to come. And he did what Hashem wanted, taking pleasure on Shabbos in the right way, in the right form. And I believe that this concept is eye-opening because it's so vastly different than the way that we normally think about pleasures. Listen, you know, it'd be much better if I didn't have to have any pleasures. I'd be much holier. Certainly, holy people like the Amorayim, I'm sure they didn't engage in, in plain activities like this. And then Yechazal share with us quite the opposite. Everything that Hashem created was with a purpose. And everything that Hashem created, when used properly, becomes holy, becomes proper. And I have one more step. 
Let's assume for a minute that you are a dyed-in-the-wool hedonist. This is your goal in life, to enjoy as much pleasure as you can on the planet. Not because it's Onik Shabbos, not because Hashem commanded, but because, hey, I want to party, let's go! And you set about this thing called, let's party, let's enjoy. I would like to share with you, you will fail. Now, last time we discussed a number of reasons why you fail, but there's a far more interesting reason why I guarantee you will fail. Because the vast majority of humanity doesn't understand what pleasures are. Let me explain to you what I mean. Imagine you're on a boat, and the boat capsizes. You swim to this desert island, and you find yourself on this empty island, deserted island, and no one's there, no food, nothing, and you're there two days, three days. You're parched, you're famished. You haven't eaten in three days. You're hungrier than you've ever been in your life. And suddenly you're walking around, and there's a tree. And under the tree you see a brown paper, oh my God, brown paper bag. You open it up. And inside is a sandwich, a dry, brittle, peanut butter sandwich that sat in the sun baking for six months. You wolf it down quicker than anything you've ever eaten in your life, and to some degree it sates your hunger. Here's the question. That activity that you did, how much pleasure did you take from it? Wow. That sense the acrid peanut butter filling my throat, the dry, crumbly bread scratching my throat. I doubt you enjoyed that activity whatsoever. There was a lot of drive, a lot of desire, a lot of passion in that activity, but very little pleasure. You see, pleasure is the amount of enjoyment we get from the activity. Passion, drive, desire is a push that pushes us towards that. All drives come from the nefesh of Bahami, from the animal soul of man. All drives in man are insatiable because animal always wants, always needs, always wants. And when you give in to your drives, you're not necessarily enjoying yourself. You're not even focused on enjoyment. You're focused on fulfilling that need. But pleasure is a different activity. You see, pleasure is the amount of pleasure that you enjoy when you experience it. Pleasures are okay when used properly, when used right. Drives are the things that the Torah warns us to control. It happens to be that invariably they're mixed. And taking pleasure in this world is a very dangerous thing. Number one, because likely I'm going to involve some drive in it. And number two, because if a person gets involved in pleasures, It tends to focus him on me, my pleasures, me, and I tend to become self-indulgent, self-gratifying. I tend to become hedonistic, and for that reason, pleasures have to be used properly. On Shabbos, the Ramchal explains to us, it's much safer. We're given a neshama that's receptive. Hashem gave us a specific commandment to enjoy. During the week, it's important to be guarded. But the point is that pleasures and passion are distinct. And when people say, I'm loving life, I'm running after my drives and desires, they're not. And the reason I say that is because many people think, oh, if only I didn't have the restrictions of the Torah, I could do what I wanted. I could run around and have so much pleasure. If you ran around as you wanted, you would give in to your desires to a very real extent. 
but I doubt highly that you'd have any more pleasure. In fact, I'm willing to guarantee you'd have far less pleasure than you have as a Torah observant Jew. Why? Because Hashem wants you to enjoy pleasures in this world. They have a purpose and you're supposed to use them. When used properly, they function well. There's a sense of calm, peace. There's a sense of purpose. You're happy inside. The neshama within you says, that a boy, and his glow within you, and you take those pleasures in the right time in the right way, and they bring you enjoyment, and they serve their purpose. The minute you run away from it, what happens is you're empty inside, and even what you're pursuing isn't pleasure, it's drives and passion, and you live a life running and running unhappy. This Gemara is eye-opening. Nigashamai was an extraordinarily spiritual individual, yet he spent effort, time focused on enjoyment for Shabbos, on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, because that's what Hashem wants, and that's holy. And when you ma'aneg the Shabbos, Gemara says you're given tremendous reward. Why? Because that's what Hashem wants from you. Hashem wants you to follow the Torah, use the system of the Torah. The Torah is not austere. The Torah is not this aesthetic, run into the, some foreign uh, cave, hide, and don't have any pleasures from this world. The Torah is a full, balanced program for your growth and your accomplishments. Everything in this world has a plan, has a purpose. As Rashi explains to us, on Shabbos we're given on the Shema Yisaira. That means we're given the ability to access things, to feel Hashem's presence, to understand things that we normally can't. We also have an additional element that you can eat and drink, enjoy it, and it's a mitzvah, it's a holy activity, and honors the Shabbos. It's buying you reward in the world to come. If you want a, an illustration what the world to come is like, look at a dog's sense of smell. The reason we don't enjoy pleasures in this world is because this world was not created for that plan, not created for that purpose. This is the gym. We're here to work, we're here to accomplish. The world to come is the spa. In that world, there's pleasures upon pleasures, unending pleasures. Why? Because that world was created for that purpose. And all you have to do is look at the vast array of flavors, textures, aromas in this world and realize that Hashem is very capable and if Hashem deemed it appropriate to create a world for one purpose, for your pleasure, there would be pleasures within pleasures, distinct and different pleasures, and you would be tremendously receptive. Not like in our world where the minute you taste the orange, it's gone. But you'd be fully enveloped in that activity, in that experience, and that is the world to come. May Hashem grant us the wisdom, the understanding to understand the world and use it as Hashem intends us to.